I couldn't be more excited about this week's episode because I finally get to talk to one of my heroes, who is Angelica Lindsay Ali. Angelica Lindsay Ali is a wife, a proud home birthing mother of four, and a lifelong lover of African culture. A native of Detroit, Angelica considers herself a community scholar whose research interests include the West African roots of African-American Islamic identity and the role of sacred sexuality within West and East African cultures. She's a certified sexual health educator who's been working in the field for the last 15 years and has been providing one-to-one support for women for over 20 years. Angelica Lindsay Ali was kind enough to come on the podcast and teach us how to talk about pleasure. So if you haven't listened to episode 42 of the 6-Minute Sex Ed podcast yet, make sure you do that, because this episode is bonus content from that conversation that we had together. So in this conversation, we talk about the sexual rights of wives in Islam, as well as her work in teaching the practical aspects of pleasure to people that take her various workshops. I can't wait for you to hear the wisdom that she was kind enough to share with me. So with no further ado, let's get to the show. So for listeners who haven't looked at your Instagram or haven't, aren't familiar with your work, would you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your work? So I'm a certified sexual health educator. I'm also certified in reproductive health. I've been working in public health for, gosh, 21 years now. Um, I've worked here. I've worked internationally. My primary focus or my my entree into the uh, public health world was through HIV AIDS prevention Mm -hmm. and testing. Uh, And so I'm still doing that as a part of my day job. And with that work, I would go out into the community and do health education and harm reduction uh, sessions with people who were sex workers, um, injecting drug users, people who were considered to have, quote, unquote, high-risk behavior. And that made me very, very comfortable with talking about a range of topics related to sexuality because I've literally heard anything and everything under the sun. Nothing surprises me anymore. And what I found is that in talking to a lot of my friends, they did not have the same level of sex education. And and I I worked as a a middle school teacher, elementary and middle school teacher, before I got involved in public health. And I knew that sex education, it wasn't happening in the schools. And when I started having children, I realized that my children were not getting access to sex education. So within my faith community, um, there are, is a high level of sexual dysfunction and collapsed marriages because people are going into marriage not understanding that physical intimacy is an important part of coupledom or, you know, however you choose to, to, to partner with other people. So I launched the Village Auntie platform as a way to talk to women specifically, people with vulvas, people who identify as women. Uh, I launched the platform as a way to deliver sex education from an unlikely source mm. because I'm a visibly Muslim woman. I wear the hijab. Um, I'm someone who's seen in faith communities. I use language that is familiar to the community. So I launched it as a way to reach out to Muslim women, black Muslim women in particular. But what I found is that it res- the message resonated with so many people across racial, mm. ethnic, gender identity, sexual orientation mm. lines 
Um, so I just continue to do that because I think that we need more people out here publicly talking about sex because everyone mm-hmm. likes to hear about sex. Too few, too few people are brave enough to talk about it. And I have no qualms about talking about sex at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've, I've been able to, you know, I'm 44, so I'm sort of out of that age range where I didn't grow up with social media. I grew up mm. on calling my boyfriend on the payphone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So I've been able to utilize, like, younger people in my life to help me build the social media platform, and, and that's how that's how I've been able to branch out and sort of build the movement. That's fantastic. I really appreciate knowing about your path to this work, too. I love that you're a teacher, which, which really comes through in your work, because you've obviously got a lot of skills just in education. But then I didn't know that you came to this work also through, you know, HIV intervention, which is unfortunate. I mean, that's a common... I came to, to this work through a similar pathway, and I think that a lot of times it's just because that's one of the only relatively stable sources of funding, you know, when it comes to mm-hmm. sex education from our government that just kind of refuses to be consistent across administrations about funding sex ed, and then the one thing that they will Absolutely. mostly do is fund some sort of HIV intervention initiative. So, um, Which, yeah. it seems like if they would fund the sex education, perhaps, they wouldn't have to do as much funding for HIV and STDs because if you arm, the kids are going to learn. They're going to learn from somewhere. So we should teach them before they learn. And perhaps we could teach them safer routes so that they're not putting themselves at risk. I have I had a 21-year-old come into uh, my office uh, who had been diagnosed within the last two years. This person mm-hmm. is young enough to be my child. They have ne- they had never heard they didn't know anything about how HIV was transmitted, but they would have learned it had they taken a sex ed class. So yeah. that's just my little disclaimer. Oh <laughs> no, problem with with so many gov. It doesn't matter whether it's Democrat, Republican, <laughs> no. whatever. It's it's a huge problem. Look, I, uh, that soapbox I could share with you, yeah, for sure, because it's just, it's infuriating. You know, it really is. It's infuriating to look at what happens. And you're right, it's a bipartisan failure. It really is. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I'm right there uh, behind you telling you to keep ranting, because I'll, I'll, I'll rant about <laughs> it too. Um, so I wanted to ask specifically about your like the Islamic approaches to the sexual rights of wives. So I just, because especially I just want to explain for myself, this is something that's very new to me, this kind of information. I grew up, you know, in a very fundamentalist Christian kind of a household, and then now as an adult, I am an atheist, but I go to Unitarian Universalist Church every Sunday. So my religious experience has been in in those two scenarios, right? I've got this fundamentalist mm-hmm. Christian life, and now I've got um, kind of this Unitarian Universalist view. So I'm I'm pretty ignorant in this area, and I'm just, I've heard you on other interviews, and I think that, as you were saying before, you know, your your perspective is really universal, the wisdom you have to share. So I just wanted to ask you kind of a, about your approach, especially incorporating that Islamic approach to the sexual rights of wives. So in Islam... Um, one of the one of the big things that I think a lot of people know is that men can take more than one wife. Mm-hmm. That's sort of you know, the, especially when you're talking about anything related to women's rights, fair. How is this possible? And and so I don't really I don't really touch on that as much mm-hmm. because whatever Islamic law is is Islamic law, and and the majority of Muslim men are only married to one wife. Mm-hmm. However, because there is that allowance there, there are certain protections and rights for wives within Islam. And so a woman has a right to sexual 
pleasure, meaning mm-hmm. orgasmic sex. And it's written about very clearly in the Hadith, in mm-hmm. Sharia, in Islamic law. For example, um, Imam Malik, who was mm-hmm. a, a Muslim jurist, he was the teacher of some of the most well-known jurists, and he has a school of jurisprudence. And in his school of jurisprudence, it is noted that a sex act is not complete unless a woman reaches orgasm. Wow. Meaning that unless you bring her to orgasm, that sex act is not complete. And mm-hmm. a woman has the right to request sex, meaning orgasmic sex, mm-hmm. multiple times in a day, up to three mm-hmm. times in one day. So that means that not just having sex, but you have to bring her to orgasm, not three times within one session, mm-hmm. but three separate and finite times. So a woman, if you look, if you really delve deeply into, and and you don't really have to go that far. If you delve Mm -hmm. deeply into Islamic law, you'll see that women's rights in the bedroom supersede that of men. They they exceed that of men. Uh, There is a popular, I'm not sure the source of it, but there is a popular teaching uh, amongst men who are about to be married, and it's she comes first. Mm-hmm. And that's literally, she comes first, your wife comes first, your wife gets pleasure first, and you are not properly pleasing her if you're not bringing her to orgasm. And one of, so divorce is disliked in Islam, as it is in most major mm-hmm. religions, but one of the clear and definite, um, almost indisputable uh, reasons for a woman requesting divorce Mm-hmm. is if her husband cannot sexually satisfy her. Wow. So if your husband cannot, if you've tried routes, if you've tried, you know, different methods, if you've, if you've exhausted your resources and you're not being satisfied sexually, you can, within Islamic laws, you can request a divorce because what that does is if you're not getting your needs met with your husband, it might lead you to look outside to another mm. person. It might lead you to do something that could tarnish your faith or that mm-hmm. could tarnish your salvation so your sex is a big part of marriage there are certain mm-hmm. prayers that you say before you have sex and sex is considered physical intimacy with one spouse is considered an act of worship it is wow. it is blessed every time you have intercourse with your spouse man or woman this goes for men and women mm-hmm. that is a blessing so intimacy is a form of ibadah. That's the Arabic word for worship. So mm-hmm. sex is really important, but I think we've adopted some puritanical views um, mm-hmm. within the Muslim community. Um, but it, it really is its all over in the literature, and I'm sort of trying to reclaim that and let people know, because a lot of Muslims don't know the things that I just told you. There are a mm-hmm. lot of Muslims who don't know that. I'm or so glad you shared Muslims. that with me. Yeah, I'm just there's some Muslims who know it, and they, they, they keep it to themselves. <laughs> Mainly well, men. You know, and I think that it's coming from, you know, an outside perspective. I mean, like, let's, you know, I'm white and cisgender, and I think that even from the outside perspective, I think it's really interesting you're sharing this knowledge with me and the way that, you know, the larger conversation about the Muslim faith does not mention these kinds of things that you're sharing with me. And I'm sure that that's on purpose, right? Just like how we choose to talk about all sorts of things, you know, in the United States, because we're we're really not good at having conversations around various types of power. I mean, we're we're really bad at that. And so, Mm -hmm. um, and and that's because, you know, people in charge of the conversation usually are wanting to protect their own power. And so I'm sure, you know, it's a series, it's a collective of individual decisions about why 
a lot of even people within their own Muslim faith don't know about this and then why um, people on the outside of the faith, even if they know about that, choose not to talk about it. You know, I'm sure that's a mm-hmm. deliberate decision. It, so. absolutely, it absolutely is. And, and I think there's a lot that I, I just left an Islamic bioethics conference at the mm. University of Chicago, because in addition to, like, the social media work, I do actual mm. education workshops, and I also do research. So I'm a, I'm a mm-hmm. community-based researcher. And mm. when I was at the bioethics symposium, there was a medical doctor who was a part of this research cohort that just ended, and he did a whole talk about intersex and Islam's mm-hmm. approach to people who are intersex or people who identify as transgender. And mm-hmm. there are Islamic books that deal with this very timely modern issue. There are books dating back hundreds of years that deal with how to provide compassionate care to people who are experiencing these issues that we're talking about right now. But those things are things that the majority of Muslims don't know. And even if, you know, people in the mainstream knew, they wouldn't talk about it because we're we're sort of seen as a, you know, very rigid religion. But there is a lot of evidence and information out there to deal with every aspect of human sexuality. That's amazing. Yeah, that is so amazing. Now I'm desperate to get my hands on those books as you're talking. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I want to know. <laughs> desperate, so I'll definitely hit you up for whatever those books are called. That's fascinating. Yeah, I'll give. You, I'll, I told him I want. I want the reference. He he was talking. He's speaking from one book called Kitab al Kunta, and mm-hmm. Kunta uh, meaning uh, a person who's intersex. So a person, and and they they break it down very very clearly, like how to how to determine if a person is. Is it falls into this category. And mm-hmm. when I was re- listening to him, and even when he talked about it, he said, how is this not different from conversations that we have right now about individuals who are transgender? So it was, it was just very interesting. I knew that there was information out there, but to have him um, talk about it so clearly, mm-hmm. it just, it was fascinating. Um, I, I think we focus a lot of times on doctrine and not practice mm-hmm. when it comes to religion. Mm-hmm. And we don't look at ways to provide an umbrella that everyone can stand under. And I think Islam has a lot of that. We just choose to even, you know, people, not just people from outside, even people from within the religion, we pick and choose what we what we want to focus on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, now that is something I can relate to, you know, coming from a Christian religion. We're the same kind of behaviors go on, mm-hmm. you know, where it's very selective and I mean, that's, that was part of my experience of eventually leaving the church is that, you know, at least in the individual churches that I went into and the religious leaders that I had contact with as a young person, you know, I've been baptized three times because each uh, church and church leader of that church would insist that the previous baptism didn't somehow count, right? Because it was oh, wow. uh, all this pedantic it sort of... Take. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> and so, um, and it was just kind of this experience over and over again where as a young person, you know, especially hopping around all these different churches because of my family circumstances, I kept seeing, at least in the Bible that I was reading at home and my religious doctrine, that the potential, you know, for this big umbrella that you're referencing, right, this universal kind of love and how you're supposed to treat everybody, whether they're in or outside of your religion. But then I'd go to church on Sunday, and I felt like the message that I was getting was entirely different that fed into my decision to eventually leave and come to a different experience where um, I feel like that umbrella is, is as big as it's supposed to be, as everybody told me it was supposed to be from the very beginning. And so I think, feel like it's really interesting listening to you kind of relate a similar dynamic, you know, that, that you, you can experience too. 
And then the, the last thing, while I have your very valuable time, I wanted to make sure to just ask you about your approach to teaching pleasure. You know, pleasure, I think, is something that a lot of people have a really hard time even talking about. And you do such tremendous work in actually being able to teach teach about pleasure. So I'm just wondering about your advice, your approach to people who explore the, talk about or explore the concept of pleasure but really have a difficult time doing so. I always talk, start any discussion with pleasure with a uh, discussion about anatomy um, mm-hmm. because I think especially for people who have vulvas, people who have vaginas, you know, women, we don't know what we have down there. <laughs> there's a lot of mis- there are a lot of misconceptions about what goes where, what comes out of what, what's mm. positioned here, what gets erect, what doesn't. So I always mm. start with a, with a conversation about anatomy, and I use the wondrous vulva puppet. Uh, it was created yes. by this fantastic woman. I have three of them. They're, they're, <laughs> I want. I wish I was a millionaire so that I could buy them for every woman that I know because they really mm. disrupt the visual narrative that we have around female genitalia. We, we tend to look at female genitalia as being um, ugly or, you know, not attractive. And here are these velvet, silk, and satin mm. pillows that are anatomically correct, and they're just gorgeous. Mm. So that, that starts the conversation. Because there are some women who say, I've never even looked down there. I don't even know what I look yeah. like down there. So I start mm. the conversation with talking about the different parts of female genitalia and what they are meant to do and how they're meant to function. And then, you know, I all of my workshops are women only. Um, they're mm-hmm. very hands-on. They're interactive. I bring dildos. I bring vaginal models. I have the Wonders Global Puppet. I even have a strap-on that I mm-hmm. use um, so that I can demonstrate that what, what a, a male might do. So, you know, there's no reenactment mm-hmm. of anything, but positioning and things like that. Yeah, and of course. I like to infuse humor in it. So once we start with the baseline so that everyone has the same level of information about anatomy, then we get into positioning. I teach mm. kunyaza, which is a traditional Rwandan technique that's used to, to elicit female ejaculation. So we talk about squirting. We talk about all of these things, and I do it in a really funny way. Um, to take the edge off, mm-hmm. and women, they, they love it. They, they want mm-hmm. to ask more questions, and I think doing it in a circle, my classes are usually no more than 25 women, mm-hmm. doing it in a small group and really establishing a safe space for women to share their vulnerabilities helps mm-hmm. a lot um, because I've been in workshops with women who've been married for 25 years and they've never had an orgasm. I know women who've had multiple children and they can't tell you where their urethra is. So having that space, and then, so what happens is when I set the safe space to talk about pleasure, then other women start start to share things that they enjoy, that they've tried. I teach Mm -hmm. 15 different types of orgasms when I do my workshops. Yeah, there are a lot. And we talk Mm -hmm. about, you know, the fact that some of them don't even require touching. And some of them require touching in places that you didn't think could make you mm-hmm. orgasmic. So I mm-hmm. think having this, I, I don't like to mince words to be very direct and be, and have a very practical conversation. So I think pleasure is something, and, and I talk about pleasure as being your right, your sacred mm-hmm. right, your divine right, your human right. You have a right to pleasure. And for a lot of women, it's just really difficult for them to wrap their minds around the fact that you have a right to pleasure. If I can break through that mental barrier that exists, I asked a group of women, you know, if you were to have sex with your partner, you know, who has a penis, you have, mm-hmm. have sex with a male, 
and he did not reach orgasm, but you did, and you rolled over and went to sleep, what do you think would happen? And mm-hmm. almost everyone in the room said, oh, no, oh, my oh my husband would never go for that. But why is that okay for us to do it? You know, lots mm-hmm. of women forfeit their pleasure. So it's an easy conversation for me to have, you know, teaching different mm-hmm. techniques, you know, how to use nipples, how to use, you know, impact orgasm. We talk about BDSM. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think kink is a great way, especially for women to deal with sexual trauma if it's mm-hmm. approached properly. Um, but having those discussions, I think, in gender-specific settings, and there have mm-hmm. been times when I have had people who um, are non-binary, mm-hmm. queer, or mm-hmm. uh, consider themselves women of trans experience. I've mm-hmm. had them in the workshops, and they've said, you know, even though I don't have this particular mm-hmm. um body part because I, I do workshops for public health so they're mm-hmm. open to the public it's, it's it's you know you have to be female identified but anyone right. can come right and when they come they say this this really just helped me to think about pleasure in a totally different way separate from anatomy but mm-hmm. just from a mental standpoint thinking about pleasure in a totally different way this is fantastic. and this is why I'm such a huge admirer of your work and why I feel like your work is so fundamentally important. So just really thank you so much, Angelica Lindsay Ali, for taking you. the time to talk to me. Thank you so much for sharing you. your wisdom with me and all of the listeners of Sixth Minute Sex Ed. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the Six Minute Sex Ed podcast. Don't forget, rate and review wherever you listen. It helps new listeners find us. Follow me on Instagram, find me at Twitter, and send your questions, comments, and episode topic suggestions to sixminutesexed at gmail.com. See you again soon.